sifter.com.au. Hello and welcome to Lightmap from Sifter. On Lightmap, we have conversations and explore the culture of video games and interactive media. And you meet game makers, journalists, and composers, and many, many more people from all around the world. My name is Gianni. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest on this episode of Lightmap, this special edition one recorded at PAX Australia, is co-director and co-founder of All Possible Futures, Jonathan Biddle, who's based in Brisbane. They are making The Plucky Squire, a 2D, 3D game where you move in and out of a storybook world. I sat down with Bids at PAX and we talked about his journey into indie games after leaving Curb Digital, how he teamed up with artist and co-founder James Turner, who previously art-directed Pokemon at Game Freak, and much more. But before we jump into that, let's find out what's been making the news this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast. Hi, I'm Fiona Bartholomew. And I'm Kyle Paletto. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 10th of March. We have the highlights from this week's Xbox Partner Preview. Roguelike deck builder Bellatro pulled from stores due to misunderstanding about its gambling content. A 2.4 million US dollar settlement has killed the two biggest Switch and 3DS emulators. And this year's BAFTA award nominations are here. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. You're listening to Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. Now, can you tell people if they haven't come across the Plucky Squire before, what is it? Uh, the Plucky Squire. Um, well, it's, uh, it's a game based around, around a book called The Plucky Squire. And it's full of characters, and it's set in the world of Mojo. And the hero of the book is called Jot, and the book is about him. And uh, during the course of the game, the uh, protagonist, sorry, antagonist of the, of the book, he finds out that he is in a book, and that he can actually use magic to eject the hero of the book and take over the book for himself. So that's what happens. Humgrump is the antagonist, and he um, pushes Jot out of the book and tries to take the book over. So we have a book that is set on the desk, and that's part of the world, but the core of the game is that you can leave the book and re-enter it, and that some of the adventure takes place on the desk. And we have lots of places within the game which take that uh, 2D and 3D mechanic, the idea of transitioning between book and desk, and we build the whole game around that idea and push that as far as we can. When I looked at it, it really looks like a greatest hits of all the favorite games that you would have played in the past. Can you tell me a little bit about incorporating, I saw side-scrolling shooters, I saw punch-ups, uh, yeah, um, you know, lots more platforming 2D sort of RPG. Tell me a little bit about that process. Well, there's, there's a lot to that, really. Um, so Jamie and I, Jamie is the other co-director, or James Turner, as, as most people will know him. We've, uh, we've worked together for a long time. We first met in 2000, which was about 23 years ago. Well, yeah, 2023, so that'll be 23 years ago. And we worked on a, some company together. That was our first company, uh, sorry, our first games job. And we kind of bonded over Nintendo. Um, so part of that was just like a love of what they did and the way they uh, approach things. In the meantime, since then, like he moved to Japan and he became quite, uh, quite well known for his art and for his work on Pokemon. 
And I stayed in the UK, I ran some companies, I did some work also for Nintendo. During that period, we, we both made quite a lot of games. Um, I, start, I learned how to program in that time, and I started to just experiment with lots of games. And kind of the, the kind of culmination of that is that we got very good at making lots of different things quite quickly because there's a lot of experience there to build on, and we would always go back, look at what we've done, uh, and we'd be able to draw on that and very quickly, for example, make a side-scroller. I made a game called Stealth Bastard, which I made in my spare time, uh, and it was just a platform game. So I learned everything about making how that works, you know, uh, how the controls should work, how it should feel, and took that, and very easy then for me to add that to the Plucky Squire, because uh, we, we have a canvas, which is the book's pages, which allows us to basically explore any game idea we want. And so once we started, we had the Zelda-style top-down game, which I made the Swords of Ditto, which is the same kind of thing. I understood how to make that. Uh, the, the game that I made, uh, Stealth Bastard. Um, and then we, we decided to just push in, in so many directions, just take what we loved. Uh, we, we had Jamie's like art style, and he would come up with crazy situations and crazy characters. We'd try and think what we'd want to do with it. And one of them was uh, we had... Uh, a picture of a giant mallard uh, with two boxing gloves in front of it, like a first-person boxing game. And so we ran with that for a bit and you know, tried to figure out what we wanted that to be. And that ended up, uh, instead of first-person, ended up more like a kind of punch-out game where you're fighting a honey badger instead. So that's the game that you see from the trailer. And, and that's it, really. We just um, we'll, like, draw on things that we've done and we, we explore things we're interested in. And if we find it fun, then we do it. And that's, that's the process, because we're able to do anything we want. No one stops us. Devolver don't step in and say, no, nope, you can't do that. And so that's what we do. We just take some of Jamie's art or like my ideas and we make something crazy out of it. How many different types of games do you have in there or many segments are there? How many genres are you touching on? That, I mean, that's really interesting because uh, I guess we don't, we don't really... Um, yeah, we don't. Because they're not. Are they, you don't think of them as quantify. mini games. You don't. We we call them mini games. Okay. Uh, but they are like some of them are much more complex than you might think. For the the boxing, for example, there's like a counter system. You can trade hits. Um, there's stamina and there's a guard, and you only play it for sixty seconds. But the whole thing for us was like an exploration of of what that would be, and so we've got this full boxing game that we can then use in other places. Um, <clears throat> but that kind of approach, it kind of. Mini games doesn't really do it justice. Like I would say the, the Wario games, they're more mini games, very simple. But we, we like to put more into it. Uh, and so in terms of the amount of, of games that we have, I'm trying to think we have uh, a game where you catch a fish. We have uh, the boxing, obviously. We have the archery game. We have um, a game which is like a, like a Pokemon turn-based battle, but it's set on a Magic the Gathering style card. We have uh, an old-school Mega Man-style game, which is set in a dinosaur universe. We have a bullet hell first-person shooter, I guess? Third-person, really. Yeah. Uh, and we have a disco stealth game, which is stealth set to a disco rhythm. We see nothing. We can, we can do what we want, so we often do. Basically. Look, I'm very curious about this because a lot of the advice I hear from established developers is when you're making a game, you've got to bring your scope back in. But it kind of sounds like you added everything you possibly could want. Is that true? We, well, okay, so some of, some of the benefits of this is uh, Jamie's worked for a long time in what he's done. I, I mentioned that. 
but he's very quick in a lot of things like animating, drawing, uh, building, and he's very good at those things. And I'm, I'm from a similar kind of mold, really. Like I'm, um, I'm a designer that learned how to program. So I learned how to design games first. And I get frustrated having to communicate these things to people. So what, what would happen is I would become a designer programmer, which is like, it's like cutting two people out of a process mm. because you don't have to document anything. Mm. You don't have to describe. You, you make and you react off that. So it's an organic process. Over and over again, you're doing things. It means you can work very quickly. And so I, I typically can make one of those games in a week. That's where it's been. Some of the more in-depth ones in a month. So like very quickly, we throw in some artwork. We can try some games out. Uh, and because we have the experience, we kind of know a little bit about how it's going to go. Mm. Not entirely. But the disco stealth thing was like a one-line thing of how about you play stealth to a beat instead of you know, hiding in the shadows and being boring. And like, it didn't take much to turn that into a game. And like, we knew the turns to make and the corners to cut. So yes, you, you, your scope should be under control, that's right. But I think we've got away with this because of uh, some of our experience in the past. It sounds like you must have a good working relationship with Jamie. Can you tell me how did that all start? You met 23 years ago. Um, how did you start to work together? Uh, well, we were on the same team, and actually, the you know the game we were making wasn't very exciting or anything. But uh, we we bonded. Uh, we we just became really firm friends. At, you know, he was at my wedding. He was the only friend I had at my wedding, so we were that close. Basically, best friends. Uh, and you know, it wasn't long after that that he left to go to Japan. He first started working at Genius Sonority. I stayed in the UK, but we were just constantly in in uh, in touch with each other. We'd just be talking a lot and we were always like you know maybe maybe one day we'll make something together and that, the years rolled on and Jamie worked his way all the way up to our director in Pokemon um, and you know from the way that I think that went he was very much he didn't want to see himself be a Pokemon guy for the rest of his life because as you can tell he's very creative so he, he really needed an outlet for that and so that was like time to try something new and I'd, I'd moved and started my own company. Uh, I used to run Curve Studios as well, but I, I left to start one bit beyond to, to do the sorts of Ditto with Devolver. The, everything kind of came together at the same time. And that was really when we're like, okay, finally we get this, get this chance to do it. So uh, he moved from Japan to the UK and I moved from the UK to Australia. We're really smart. That's how, <laughs> that's how we work. Um, but even with that time zone difference, like it, it's that relationship stays the same. Like we, we both, um, we're both strong where the other is weak. I'm, uh, I work from the bottom up, like I'm mechanics based. Um, I'm not really interested in character or story. I like making a game work and like understanding what's behind it and what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, all that stuff really, I love it. Jamie just doesn't like that stuff so much. He's character, he's world, you know. Um, He's like much more top level. Don't get me wrong, he, he understands games, he understands game design very well. But when, the, when we, we meet, we meet from different directions. So that's the kind of strength that we have. We both like augment each other. How long have you been working on the Plucky Squire? I'm curious how the process has been and, and you know, when that all started. Um, you know, what does it first look like when you're just putting white boxes on a stage? That's really interesting, actually, um, because I'm about to do a presentation on exactly that tomorrow. Uh, which shows the Plucky Squire start at zero, uh, ends up today. When I'm making the game, I, uh, I record everything that I do because I like to watch the problems that occur. So I've got videos going back to day one 
all the way through till actually yesterday, the day before yesterday. So 4,000 videos. So I actually documented that quite clearly. And I know exactly like what, you know, when we started and how long it took to do certain things. So uh, it was the middle of 2020 when we started, which is like- Good time to start again. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah it was, yeah. Um, and we spent a year on a prototype for Devolver. We took the idea to them. Uh, we showed them like some stuff we'd done. We were learning Unreal at the time. We'd made a game previously just in Unreal, just as a practice. It wasn't a proper game. Um, and so we spent a year making that, um, that prototype. And what we did for that is we, we focused on the things that were different about our game. And we didn't really try and do much else because we know there's a lot of good 2D games out there. There's a lot of 3D games out there. And we can't really compete with them. You know, we're a small team. Well, our strength is the 2D and 3D when they're combined. So we took those ideas and what it means to work uh, play with a book, what a book is physically and um, how you can interact with that. And we made a demo just about that. Uh, and it was, it was great. It's like a lot of the stuff that's in there is pretty much what we've got today. So we, we took a lot of early leaps very quickly. And since then, it's been about fleshing that out and fleshing the world out, fleshing the art out. And that's really about volume uh, and, and it's making more of the idea. Uh, and that's, that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. <laughs> I'm curious, why did you start recording your entire process? Is it something you've always done? Was there a moment that you thought, I should keep track of what I'm doing here? It's not about keeping track. It's about uh, when I program something, um, it goes wrong most of the time. Uh, and then you, uh, you're trying to figure out what, what, what went wrong? And you like run it again and you, oh, that went wrong. Or you could just record it every time. And when you record it, you see it go wrong and then you... Look at and you play it back in slow motion. You can see what's happening. It, it's a it's a development process. It just so happens that I still have all those videos. So it's 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 an accident that I've documented everything we've done. Well, tell you what, I think game archivists like Digital Eclipse, for example, might be quite thrilled to know that you've <laughs> recorded every moment of the creation of this game because I uh, uh, think it would be quite a fascinating way to look back into it. I'm curious, um, thinking about your history, starting um, with Curve and stepping away from a, a bigger company to go indie what was the th thoughts behind doing it? i mean you did that in 2015 ish yeah that's that time. right yeah um what why, why did you want to leave and, and move off and was it just that you needed a more of a creative space to do what you wanted to do um, yeah it's um it was never really uh, anything um negative it was really we we built curve to a certain point like we were making our own original games uh, we made Hydroventure or Fluidity for Nintendo and a sequel for that. And we had Stealth Bastard, also Stealth Inc. And we were doing really well at that. But then it, it became really difficult as a studio to, to get work in that area. You'd have to pitch a game to a publisher. They'd have to fund you the money. And those studios were getting bigger and more expensive at the same time that indie developers were coming in and being quite cheap. So we, we started to look less appealing and we started to pick up less work. So we, we ended up um, helping existing developers port their games to console instead. People like uh, Jasper Byrne for Lone Survivor and Mike Bithell with Thomas Was Alone. We did The Swapper. We did a lot of games like that. And it, it, helped, uh, it helped those guys and it helped us as well. It turned from really just that into being an actual publisher. So we started to uh, sign games, publish games. And I'm not a publisher, I'm a games developer. So at that point it was like, well, this, this is just not a position for me. This is not what I do. And so left Curve to do that so that I could continue my development. And that's, so I basically took what, what Curve's creator side was and took that with me. 
Being an independent developer since 2015 is it's quite an achievement, I think, if you can continue on to do that for such a long time, because it's been a really tricky time during that space. And I'm curious, you know, what were some of those lessons that you had to learn when you were out on your own versus having, I guess, the machinery of a bigger company and the processes and of all of that behind you? Um, you have to do more with less. I think that's the biggest thing. And I tried on the Swords Editor, I did try to do too much, I think. I was doing six people's job at one point. Uh, and that's the hardest thing, because if you're used to a, a larger like scope and team, if you do end up trying to do what you can do with yourself doing six roles, that's, that's difficult. It's, it's very troublesome. So I, I would say scope, which is what I've completely ignored, <laughs> is probably something to worry about, um, certainly. Um, but also, like, it's, it's the people, people you work with. Uh, it's not that it was never a thing um, in when, it, when I was running Curve, but certainly when you're a smaller team, like the, everyone has a bigger impact or a bigger, bigger part of what you're making, uh, you know, and that relationship you have with those people and, and what they mean to the game, you have to uh, respect them and make sure that uh, they're happy and that they feel uh, like they're, they're making an impact and that they're autonomous. I think that's more important. Than, than it is in a bigger company. Do you prefer being a designer or a boss? Oh God, I know, I hate being a boss. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I have to do scheduling, um, spreadsheets, I have to worry about other people's stuff. Are you doing that currently though, right? Well, part, partly, but I also still program and still design. But when I've got that out of the way, that's my, that's my pleasure to get back on with the, the, the kind of crafting side of things. Yeah, that's, that's what feels best to me, yeah. Tell me about the team that you've assembled uh, at All Possible Futures. We, um, we're kind of completely international. We have, the way that we split it is that we have code and design in the east, which is uh, New Zealand, Australia, Tokyo, Osaka, Philippines, uh, and actually someone on the west coast of Canada who works evenings. But that's uh, design and code. And um, in, the, in the west, we have the art department, which is our animators and our background artists and uh, 3D artists, uh, and that kind of starts at uh, South Africa um, and through to Amsterdam and then across uh, Europe in London, all the way to the East Coast of America in Boston. So we have this split of um, professionals that are linked effectively, mostly by Jamie and I, because we, we are the heads of those departments and we direct things that way. But obviously everyone's working on Slack, everyone's working remotely and asynchronously at the same time. So everyone on the team needs to be like, Pretty good at what they do because there's a lot of autonomy. We don't we don't like set. Uh, we don't, don't set on to, by nine. Yeah, or we don't set any times. It's like that's that's for them to worry about. And like people, they, they have their own lives and they have children. Some of them and they have things to do and things to crop up in life. So like that's that's something we just expect. And and the people who who come and work with us, they I think they really appreciate that. But that for us is like a key part key part of. Um, having those team members. And they're all, they work so much more happily as a, as a result of being respected, I think. How do you keep it all together? What does your production process actually look like? Is it, uh, you know, you know, I'm just curious, because you've yeah. got people jumping in at all different times. Do you have to organize that there's a crossover time zone when everyone is online? Or is it just departments that meet each other and then you chat to Jamie? We, we certainly have a few challenges, yeah. Um, like sometimes I start meetings at 6 a.m. and then finish other meetings at 10 p.m. in the same day. 
So there's, there's a lot of time zone problems. Uh, we, we did previously just have Jamie and I looking after it, uh, but it became, it's become too much because there's so many things on the boil now that we have a producer, she's come in to, to help us to look after it. Uh, we, we generally let people discuss things between themselves because it, we find that um, the, the better the team meshes, then the better the, better the result really. Everything, if they, everything goes through me or Jamie, it becomes a bottleneck. Uh, and things stall, so we need to make sure things are fluid and th things keep moving. Uh, also, great communication, really. <laughs> it has to be. It's, it's really tricky to do across those countries, you know. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, you, the game is, is in progress at the moment. P a few people have seen it and played it. And I'm just curious, what are you most proud of so far about how the game is at, at it is right now? For us, I think that we're uh, exploring that initial idea like really quite effectively. But we, it was a, a lightning strike moment when we thought that you know we could take this book with Jamie's artwork, make a 3D book of it, but then actually leave to explore the surroundings of that desk. And I think for us, the, the, the promise of that mechanic is very rich and there's a lot of things you can do with it. And I think we've... We've really done some interesting things. Like we've, um, what we're doing is, uh, is definitely unique. It's different. No one's really done it, and it's it's very tricky to do. There, there are games like Mario Odyssey where you you jump yeah, into two D training, yeah, and yeah. do. But I think what we're doing is it's almost the reverse, and also more ambitious than a Nintendo game, which is insane. But I think the the way that we're doing that successfully is, you know, very proud of that. And I think, um, yeah, I think that people will enjoy it definitely. Um, what have people told you about? the game so far people who've played it for the first time yeah um there's this lovely words that get thrown like like uh, you know uh, joyous and warmth and and happy and uh, this is really important to us is that we like cute things uh, and you know we we like making people smile and it just so happens that being able to make something like that does make people smile um we we certainly stand out in like a lot of the, the kind of games that are around at the moment, I'm not putting other games down, but we seem to be coming from a different area. I know when we were announced, we were, we were shown alongside a lot of first-person shooters and horror games, and then suddenly there was this weird, colourful game about this boy in a book who hits badgers in the face, and uh, people really warm to it. And I think that that's what people, when they play it, is that um, it makes them smile. It makes them like forget forget some of the troubles in their life and they're like this is what we're after you know is this what we formed the studio for was to make people feel that so it's that's really nice to be able to do that to me it feels very much like a nintendo game right yeah. that's a, a comparison you welcome or not but um i'm just curious is you know is that the sort of space that you want to sit in in the you know something that potentially anyone of all ages could be able to play yeah, we, we want to appeal to as many people as possible. We're, we're kind of platform agnostic and we just want to make as many people happy as possible. But um, yeah, in terms of it being a Nintendo game, so Jamie's made a game for Nintendo, he made Harmonite, and I've made two games for Nintendo, the Fluidity games, Hydroventure games. So there's a lot of that DNA in there and we've learned things from that that we are directly applying to the game we're making. Uh, we're not necessarily trying to make a Nintendo game, it's just that um, I think the design language of it? Yeah, I think the design language is something it's natural for us to work in now. And uh, obviously Jamie's artwork, it has those, those sensibilities anyway, that kind of, uh, you know, Pikmin-esque, Mario-esque, uh, Kirby, 
um, Captain the Toad Adventures. You know, it's that's that's very similar kind of ground that he's treading. Not on purpose. It's just because of what he likes. So I, th I think a combination there of the design uh, ethos as well as the visuals that, that really evokes that kind of Nintendo uh, feeling. How long until people can play it? The general uh, public? I would say it's not too long, but long enough for us to finish it and make it good. <laughs> we don't want to rush it. Um, uh, you know, 2024. We don't want to say too much, but yeah, hopefully soon. But don't rush us. You want it to be good. A delayed game is better than a game that's rushed. I think that's a famous Miyamoto quote there. That's right. Um, Bids, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for sitting down, uh, taking the time to have a chat to me at Paxos, and good luck with your presentation. Yeah, thank All you. Right. Thank you. Australia's best video game podcast. This is Lightmap. Get every episode free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and sifter.com.au. That's all for today's show. Thanks for listening and checking out the Plucky Sky. We've got heaps of PAX Australia and Melbourne International Games Week coverage on the Sifter website. That's sifter.com.au. Now, Sifter is produced by Fiona Bartholomeus, Daniel Ang, Chris Button, Kyle Paletto, Adam Christou, Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni DiGiovanni, and I'm the executive producer. If I can ask you one favor, it's can you share the show? If you like this episode, just share it. Tell your mates. Send them a link. It makes a really big difference. And recommending a show that you like is one of the best free things you can do to support indie games and indie podcasts. So share that link. Very easy to do. YouTube, podcast players, wherever you are, send it off to a friend. That's all we the time for now. Until next time, have fun. Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Final Fantasy VII Rebirth is finally here, continuing the ambitious reimagining of a beloved classic. It's very, very funny. I guess like that's that's part of the silliness, you know. Like you have this these really big world-ending stakes. You know, Sephiroth is a really terrifying villain. You know, the world's ending, and I think to have a game that is still fun and pleasant to play, I think maybe the tone is kind of. It's important to strike both tones because you need that levity so that it's not constantly depressing, you know? And I think so having the characters have that humour and like having the mini games and having it be a little bit lighter hearted, I think does give you that hope. Does it uphold the legacy of the famous original or burn Midgar to ashes to forge its own path? Find out on Drop Rate, available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>